This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The academic life at Westminster Seminary, California does not just happen in the classroom. It happens in prayer. It happens in the chapel. It happens in casual hallway discussions. And when one faculty member walks out of his office and into a colleague's to say, hey, what do you think about this? The original concept behind Office Hours was to give you a glimpse of these sorts of discussions, and this episode grows out of just one such discussion. Steve Baugh is professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's taught since the early 1980s. His office is next to mine, and one day last spring we had one of those, hey, what do you think discussions about Hebrews 12. He's been studying Hebrews for three decades now. He lectures on it in class, and he joins us now to consider some of the challenging topics raised in Hebrews 12 and to share with us some of the fruit of his studies. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you. So you've been working on Hebrews 12, and we had a very interesting discussion that I wanted to share with the listener, but let's not assume that the listener is where you are or where we are. Let's get everyone oriented. To whom was Hebrews written, why, and when? Hebrews was written to those who were considering probably adding earthly sacrifices to the work of Christ. They may not have intentionally sought to reject Christ, but in fact they were when they were going to add anything to his earthly sacrifice, which covers our sins alone. And it is pretty clear that these are people either Jewish or influenced by Judaism who were going to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, in the first century, everybody engaged in animal sacrifice in temples. So this was not unusual for Gentiles either. They would have engaged in all sorts of sacrifices. If you had lunch, you basically hired a cook who would take your uh, lunch animal over to the chapel and have it sacrificed and then serve up the lunch. So this is just normal for anyone in the first century. So the idea of real blood, real sacrifice, you know, something you can see and handle and taste being a uh, sacrifice is part of their culture and really ingrained in them. So the idea of Christ, a human being, offering one sacrifice once for all was new to them. And they really had a hard time with his sacrifice because they could not see it. You know, he's ascended into heaven and it's an abiding value. So this is the context of this letter. When? Probably before the destruction of the temple. So it's before 70 AD, sometime in the 60s. Uh, You can tell that it's probably right before the uh, destruction of the temple. And if the listener wants more background on Hebrews, go to wscal.edu slash office hours, and there you will see an entire season of episodes, about 13 episodes discussing the book of Hebrews, in which Dr. Boff features prominently. So that would also be good preparation for this or a resource for continuing study in the book of Hebrews. So these are Christians, people who profess faith in Christ, who are gathered as a congregation somewhere. There's debate about where they are, and they're either 
Jewish or influenced in some way by Judaism and tempted, as you say, to add Moses. So in some ways to go back to the old covenant and they're maybe getting some pressure from the outside. People saying, what are you doing? Why are you not attending the synagogue? Or why are you not going to temple? Or why are you not washing your hands the way we do and following the first century understanding of the ceremonial laws under which we also live? Yeah, this is why Hebrews consistently brings up not tradition of the fathers when he's critiquing the Old Covenant, but he goes right to the Old Testament scriptures to say, look, they were already designed from the beginning to be temporary. If you want just one passage to look at, you go to the beginning of chapter 10, where he says, why were these sacrifices in the temple to remove sin, so the Day of Atonement sacrifice, why were they repeated year after year if they could actually bring the forgiveness of sins? They were repeated year after year, not because they could bring forgiveness, but as a reminder of sin year by year until Christ would come to bring the fulfillment of those types. And so it's pointless to go back to the types and shadows, those things that were intentionally temporary, intentionally illustrative, intentionally looking forward to Christ, when in Christ, the reality, the thing to which they pointed, has already come. If you want to go back to the old-time religion of Moses or Abraham and Levi, go to Jesus. That's whom they believed in. They saw him in the types. So by adding to Jesus, you're really not being faithful to Moses or to Abraham or to any of the forefathers whom he has just listed in chapter 11. He invokes them as witnesses in chapter 11, saying, look, these people were looking for a city not made by hands, and they were seeing Christ. It says that explicitly. Moses preferred the reproach of Christ to the treasures of Egypt. He saw Christ in the reproach of God's people, and that's what he put his uh, faith in, his trust. So the true religion, the actual core, substantial religion of Moses and of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the forefathers was not really the types and shadows and the sacrifices and all of those things that have fallen away or been fulfilled and abrogated. It was really Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice, and they saw through the types and shadows to Christ. It says that Explicitly in Hebrews chapter 11, okay. that they saw these things from afar and professed them. Now, let me add one point. There's a good analogy here in what you just said. These things were sacraments for them. So they didn't trust in the animal, but in what the animal prefigured, just like we don't trust in the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, but what it points to. It's a sign and seal of Christ's sacrifice. Bread in itself, apart from Christ, has no value. Just for the body, but no spiritual significance. That's that's right. But once it's set apart and made a sacrament, then it— And join with faith. Join with faith. The Holy Spirit uses that to strengthen us and to feed us with Christ, to initiate us into the visible covenant community, and to lead us to the reality, which is Christ. So also, in the Old Testament period, with those— types. They were of value then, but not now, now that Christ has come to fulfill them. Now, you mentioned chapter 10. There's some strong language in chapter 10 and also in chapter 6 that I think relates to some of the things that we want to talk about in chapter 12. What's happening quickly? Yeah, here we go. Dr. Ball, explain to us one of the most difficult passages in all of Hebrews, which is chapter 6. Can you do that quickly for us? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, I can. You have to make a distinction 
which if you want to know about this distinction, you really should talk to Scott Clark. So I'd like you to consult yourself and you will find <laughs> you will find the answer because in my discussions with you over the years, this has really been one of the most helpful things we've discussed. That in the Reformed tradition, we've made a distinction between administration and substance of the covenant. So the covenant is administered outwardly, outwardly to people who profess Christ, but may or may not genuinely believe. Now, we assume they all believe. We're not pessimists. We don't look at this as somehow testing people. It's a true conveying the gospel to people that they would be one and brought up in the faith. We regard them as believers. Right. We regard them as believers. But the fact is, in the history of the church of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the reality is some people apostatize. And they never truly participated in the substance of the covenant, which is Christ. They had an outward administration of the grace of God, and that's chapter 6. It talks about tasting of the heavenly gift and the good things of the age to come, you know, this uh, petitioning of the Holy Spirit. They have a true non-saving administration of the covenant if they are apostate like Judas. So if you want to see someone in the New Covenant era, you look at Judas or Simon Magus or Ananias and Sapphira. They were truly in connection in an outward administration with the covenant of grace. They were participants right. in the external administration of the covenant of grace. Like I said, I really should be talking to you about this and <laughs> getting your illumination because this is really important and you have helped me understand it better. And that's how you understand Hebrews. He's talking to the church. He's talking to professing congregation that is in danger of, as a group, apostatizing from Christ. And he's saying, this is what happens. If you apostatize, you will not participate in the substance. You only have an administration of these things. But then he says, as chapter 6 goes on, we have better uh, hope for you. We see that there is some evidence in you in a congregation that you will heed this word of exhortation and turn from this uh, reckless and uh, disastrous way that you're headed. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And you see this in chapter 10, too, where he says in verse 23, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and Good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For, in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse, in verse 29, punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That's a remarkable passage because there you see everything that you were just describing. Well, can I jump in here? Please. I'd like you to read the next two verses. Okay. In verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's that last one. The Lord will judge his people. It's not the world. It's his people. And this is what Jesus talks about when he says that on the last day, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats from his kingdom. 
These are goats in his kingdom, people who profess him and say, Lord, Lord. And he says, I never knew you. You were not one of mine. I had claimed you. I had given you all these benefits and you turned away from me to go your own way, even though you had my name upon you. This is not new. This is exactly what happened to national Israel. God was their God. They were his people and they turned away from him except for the remnant. So God will always preserve his people. There will always be a remnant. Likewise in the church. We're not pessimists. We don't think the church is, you know, filled with apostates and filled with people who are, you know, not genuine believers. We expect the opposite. We expect everybody in the congregation to be genuine believers and persevering in faith and growing in holiness and righteousness before the Lord out of love and gratitude. But we have to deal with this reality that there are in the midst of people in the congregation, people like Esau, which brings us to chapter 12. But if you want to talk further... I would have you consult Dr. Scott Clark on administration <laughs> and substance, because this is really a vital distinction in how we understand the nature of the church. And it comes up not just here. Paul utilizes the same thing. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, for example, in Romans. A Jew is one who is yeah. a Jew inwardly? Yeah. This is all part of the structure of biblical revelation from the beginning on through the New Testament. And I would recommend that the listener go read Casper Olivianus, because that's where I learned it. <laughs> so I don't want to give the listener a false impression, like I figured something out. This was the structure of one of his major works on the substance of the covenant of grace between God and the elect. And by saying substance, he was invoking a distinction that Christians had used for a very long time, and that is the distinction between that which is of the essence of a thing and that which is not. So you can participate in the outward administration, which is important because you can't have the stuff, the essence, without participating in the administration, but it's possible to participate in the administration and not have the stuff, the essence. Yeah, what you just said there, that's the key to the warning passages in Hebrews. If you understand that principle, you understand Hebrews. So people will often ask me, to whom are the warning passages addressed? To believers? And the answer is, to all professing believers, to the church. It's important because, as a practical matter, there have been those who have taken these passages and uh, also some of the language in chapter 12 to, in effect, put believers under a kind of covenant of works. Well, you're in by grace, but, and then they go to, for example, verse 12, 14, but unless you strive for peace with everyone, quoting verse 14 from the English Standard Version, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, right? So they'll insert that verse there. Unless you meet that test, right, you won't be saved. And so you're saved now, but you need to keep accumulating holiness because if you don't achieve a sufficient degree of holiness, then you're in trouble with the Lord. So you better get going. You better get cracking. And your thesis as I understand it, is that doesn't quite understand what the writer to the Hebrews is saying generally and specifically in chapter 12. Yes, on both accounts. This is not what Hebrews is up to in general. He's not imposing a level of sanctity for qualification to see the Lord. He is interested in a level of sanctity in his ears and encouraging them to love and good works and to acts of righteousness, particularly in chapter 13, it's pretty clear. All Christians, you know, should strive for growing in holiness. 
But it's not what he's saying in Hebrews 12, 14, in my opinion. He is saying something in line with how he's been addressing these issues in his book. This is uh, not a isolated fragment in the book, but part of a uh, tapestry of the whole. And when you examine what he's saying, in my opinion, this word rendered holiness is probably best rendered and understood as sacrificial consecration. That's how I think we should understand the term he's using. But let me talk just in a moment about the, I mentioned about the tapestry of the whole book. Please. When you're working at the book of Hebrews, one of the most important things to keep in mind is, this is one thing. He does not ever move to new topics. It's all just one complex topic. So when you're working with chapter 5, you have to keep the whole in mind. You work with chapter 6, you've got to have chapters 1 through 5 in mind, and then where he takes you in chapter 7 to 13. So you really have to see this as one whole thing. Now, our colleague, Dennis Johnson, who, by the way, has recently finished a commentary on the book of Hebrews. It is in manuscript form, but it will be coming out. Dennis Johnson has made a compelling case that this is a sermon. So just like you would not take a pastor's sermon and divide it into discrete segments with really completely different things going on, hopefully, (laughs) in that sermon, but rather it's one overarching, connected, integrated presentation, that's what Hebrews is. So when I say that Hebrews 12, 14 fits into the tapestry of what he's saying, he's been talking about the sacrificial consecration that Christ self-sacrifice brings to believers repeatedly. And he's saying, this is the one thing that brings us holiness. It brings us this consecration, also the term for perfection, which is a technical term going back to Leviticus. It means qualification to enter the presence of God, purification, you could say, consecration, being purified of sins. He talks about cleansing of conscience and doing away with guilt. That's what Christ's sacrifice does once for all. And that's what we're to strive to attain in Hebrews 12, 14. So it's really important, just to sort of recap here, for the listener to understand Hebrews Not only to read Hebrews in light of the whole epistle or the whole sermon, but also to read Hebrews in light of the Old Testament. Yes. The writer to the Hebrews, the pastor, the preacher, is steeped in the Old Testament, invokes Old Testament language, categories, and images on a regular basis without always saying, hey, this is a reference back to Deuteronomy 29, or this is a reference to Leviticus 18. He sort of assumes that you know that or you should know that. Oh, yeah. Repeatedly. He does it in the passage at hand. So just to clarify that, Hebrews 12, 14 fits into a larger passage that's unified. And the boundaries are Hebrews 12, 12 through 12, 17. So that's really one unified paragraph, you could say. Now, paragraph is a modern concept and not an ancient Greek concept in how he's writing. But it is uh, an analogy And so you really want to look at the whole paragraph. Now, this becomes even clearer when you see that grammatically, verses 15 and 16, so Hebrews 12, 15 and 16, are grammatically dependent on verses 12 through 14. So it doesn't have independent standing. Now, in our translations, there's a period often after verse 14, and a new sentence begins in 15. This does not match how the Greek is structured. When you're dealing with English, English has its own rules. But when you 
you know, move back to how the Greek works, it has its own rules. And, you know, if you're working with the Greek text, it shows you clearly that verses 15 and 16 are dependent on 12 through 14. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Okay, so this is very important. You're sitting here looking at your Greek text, and originally when this text was written out and copied and sent to the congregation, it would have been likely in capital letters without any breaks really between the words and without punctuation or without much of what we think of as punctuation. So the text would have looked rather different. And what we have are attempts, faithful attempts by scholars to render that text into English. And the translators have to try to put the text into a way that is understandable according to English conventions and expectations and so forth. So you're helping us to bridge the difference. And here's a great illustration of why we not only as faculty work in Greek and Hebrew, but that we teach our students, many of whom are going on to be pastors, to work in Greek and Hebrew. Because that's the Word of God that we expect them to know in the original language and be able to explain to the congregation. Yeah, that's exactly right, because that's the pastor's job. He's the expert in the Scripture. It's not that the English isn't faithful or accurate, but it's that there are things that are not easy to convey. And, of course, translators do disagree sometimes about how to put a sentence into English. Yeah, that's right. But it's like describing a foreign country. So if you were brought up in a very small kind of parochial area like I was, I'm from a small town and, you know, our big trip was to go to, you know, the next big city 40 miles away and that's about it. And then you have a foreign country with completely different ways of doing things and talking and their language is structured differently. That's what we're dealing with with the ancient Greek that's even more difficult for us because their writing convention seems so strange. There usually was no punctuation in prose. Punctuation was reserved for poetry in the ancient Greek world. And so, yeah, it was all capital letters all run together, no space between words or sentences or anything else. They had different ways of indicating that, and Hebrews is doing that in the passage we're looking at. He has some markers to show you the boundaries of his thought and how things develop. Okay, that's important. So you're not just making things up. 
Yeah, I mean, because it could be the listener is hearing this for the first time and maybe didn't hear the series on Hebrews or isn't aware of these kinds of issues and is thinking, well, how do I know that Professor Baugh isn't just making things up? Because we know scholars are given to novelty and craziness. <laughs> and you're saying, no, if you look at the text in the original context, look at the original language, there are actual indicators inherent in the text that lead you to think the way that you do. Yeah. Just so you know, I've spent all summer reading Hebrews. I've finished reading it three times in Greek, and I've been working on various passages in greater detail. So this is not a casual thing for me. It's something I've really been pursuing seriously for many years is how to read Greek more natively. After 39 years of reading Greek, I feel like I should be better at it. I'm working at it. I feel like I'm getting better at it, finally. <laughs> well, just so the listener understands, we sometimes have to rem remind Professor Baugh to speak English. <laughs> so, <No>. Steve, English, <laughs> English. All right, so in, in verse 12 in the ESV, it says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, which really sounds very much like the Old Testament, doesn't it? Well, it is. It's it from is. Isaiah. Yeah. Well, there, that's why. It's an illusion from Isaiah. Exactly. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And again, here in my English text that I have before me, I've got Greek here and English here. It doesn't exactly indicate directly that this is an illusion, but as you say, this is a quotation or allusion back to Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4. So you really need to be noticing where Hebrews is invoking the Old Testament. Then verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, and the word there is? The word is hagiasmas, and it's the only time that Hebrews uses this word. So I'll come back to it. Okay, we'll come back. Without which no one will see the Lord. So do you want me to go on? Or? Yeah, I want you to read 15 and 16. Okay. We'll leave aside 17. It just qualifies verse 16. And in your understanding, 15 is immediately connected to 14 and really shouldn't be separated. Yeah, that's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many became defiled. Again, another quotation of or allusion to the Hebrew Scriptures. So what we have here is, in verse 14, he says, we'll just skip the, you know, pursuing peace, seeking peace, but seeking this hagiasmas, so it's rendered holiness, and what I would like you to understand as sacrificial consecration, without which no one will see God. Then he brings in qualifiers to help you understand what that means in verses 15 and 16. So verses 15 and 16 are grammatically dependent on what precedes. And it's important because you can see he's unpacking that statement. And so if you seek this communal peace and consecration, here's how you do that. You ensure that there's no one in your congregation who falls short of the grace of God. Secondly, there's no root of bitterness rising up to bring problems to the congregation. And no one like Esau who sold his birthright in your congregation. So basically, he's arguing for church discipline. That's what he's saying, is as a congregation, you are to seek this consecration in the sacrifice of Christ. So it's a call for persevering in faith. 
in Christ and seeking the benefits of his work as a community. That's clear. Now, if you want to hear the Greek and how this works in 15 and 16, it's unified by three statements that all begin, metis, metis, metis. I just quoted the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16. It appears three times, lest anyone, lest there be any, lest there be any, and it's just the same words, and that's how he unifies this. And so we talked about how there's no punctuation. Well, this is how you provide a kind of punctuation. You repeat words or you arrange your words so that it shows you the contours of how it should be presented and thought about. So he uses repetition yeah. to structure and organize and to signal his intent. Yeah. And to show that these are unpacking verse 14 because it opens with a dependent participle. So this thing rendered see to it or ensure that, looking to, that's all this participle and how it uh, is dependent on what precedes. See to it lest anybody. And then he repeats that three times. Now let me bring in one important thing here. This middle one, any root of bitterness, this is a quotation from Deuteronomy 29. It's a clear allusion to it. Let me read that passage for you. This is Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19 in English. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That's what he alludes to. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So you see the issue that Hebrews alludes to fits his context and he's bringing that in. You want to guard against apostasy in your congregation. So you employ church discipline to win back someone who is going along that route. And that's the context of the Old Covenant Deuteronomy 29 passage is apostasy and idolatry. So Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Persevere in faith. Hold fast to Christ and the benefits of his sacrifice, which is your consecration, that which will ensure that you enter into the very presence of God. This is really clear. You read chapter 10, he says that repeatedly. Draw near. In chapter 4, draw near to the throne of grace. In the sacrifice of Christ, we have a high priest who's provided a once-for-all sacrifice by which we draw near and we are consecrated. And he uses a verb related to the this hagiasmas, hagiadzo, this consecration, this perfection, this qualification to enter the presence of God. This is where he's taking us in the context of our passage. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And this qualification is obtained by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's very important because it's not the case that Hebrews is saying, well, you're in, but you're not quite there yet. And you need to accumulate a sufficient degree of hagiosmos, of holiness, in order to finally qualify to be able to appear before the Lord at the last day. So this understanding that I just summarized is relatively widely held. I know I've heard it and I've had people say it to me and I have thought it in the past. And you're saying that really doesn't accurately convey at all what this verse is saying. This verse is really saying something quite different. It's saying hold fast to Christ and seek as a community to maintain the faith that we have in Christ and do not 
fall away from it. The seeking is a consequence of being in Christ. Right. Having laid hold of Christ, consequently, you need to do certain things or you need to pursue certain things. But the salvation that you have is found in Christ, not in your subjective personal sanctification. Right. That's huge. Yes. You, you say right, as if everyone can see this. Yeah, this is obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but but th- this may well be the first time that the listener has heard that. So you need to bear with us mere mortals. Here. No, no. Let me add one more thing. Just, you know, something that is in our text, because this is always the basis for any kind of teaching is the teaching of the scripture and making a case that this is what our text is saying. So it's interesting when he says, pursue that hagiasmas, this uh, consecration, let's say, apart from which no one will see the Lord. Now, he doesn't talk about degrees. He says, apart from which implies you either have it or you don't. That's important. So this is a binary thing. Now, let me give you other places where that same phrase appears. We have a high priest who shared and was tempted in everything like we were apart from sin. It's the same phrase, without sin. So he had no sin. So you either have sin or you don't. And he did not have sin. That's uh, Hebrews 4.15. In Hebrews 7.7, apart from all dissension, there's no dispute here. So it's another way of saying there is none. So let's render Hebrews 12.14 that way. Seek that hagiasmas, and without it, you will not see the Lord. You either have it or you don't. Also in Hebrews 9:28, referring to Christ, he is without sin. Hebrews 10:28, the law of Moses condemns the one who apostatizes and they die without mercy. So there's no mercy. Hebrews 11:6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So all these words rendered without, it's the same word as used in our text in Hebrews 12:14. So in none of those other places could you possibly translate that without a sufficient degree of which. That's right. It doesn't refer to that. There's not a degree that's either you have this or you don't. I think a significant number of people probably assume or think that without which in 1214 really means without sufficient degree of which. Yeah. You're saying that is eisegesis. That's reading something into the text that was never in the text, never intended to be taught by the text. That's not what the text says. Okay. That's important. And then, you know, this other idea of a degree of holiness required to see the Lord, the normal question is, well, how much? Well, exactly. And then you have people making up, you know, how much or what kind or particular deeds that you have to perform. Which ironically does exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is worried about, and that is, turns the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. And adds something to the sacrifice of Christ, which he will not allow. If there's any book of the New Testament, and they all do, by the way. But no one's teaches, clear. Yeah, no one's clear No one's clear this. that you cannot add to the work of Christ as the foundation for our inheritance of righteousness. And by the way, that comes right out of Hebrews 11:7, where it says that Noah became heir of the righteousness in accordance with faith. That's exactly righteousness by grace through faith. Yeah, by grace alone through faith alone. There so it's, it's not the case that you're reading some novelty back into Hebrews, but you've just questioned some premises, you've gone back and looked at the scriptures and said, wait a minute, we have begun to read something into this text that was never intended to be there in the first place. Well, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying, because I think it's just what he says. 
So that's important, Professor Luther, that when <laughs> when you're proposing a, a reformation, that we explain to folks, you know, what the consequences of this are and how you got here and what this means. So really what you're saying pastorally is that, Christian, it's not that you shouldn't be striving for holiness. You certainly should. And that's a necessary consequence of your faith in Christ. But the first thing that you must do is make sure that you are united to Christ, that you're in Christ by his grace alone, through faith alone. And if you are in Christ, then you ought not be looking for other things in addition to Christ. I agree with that entirely. Let me take you to a verse in Hebrews that I think summarizes what you just said and really summarizes the gospel, that in Christ we have freedom, freedom to act in righteousness before the Lord and to serve him with our whole heart and to grow in holiness and to work for purification of our lives and helping others. So you look at Hebrews 9, 14, it's all summarized there. So you have the work of the Holy Trinity in accomplishing our redemption and then setting us free as priests of the living God to serve him. So let me just quote that in translation. How much more will the blood of Christ, so here's the incarnate Son of God, who through the eternal spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, there's the Father, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There we have guilt, grace, and gratitude. We serve the living God. Our guilt is done away with by the blood of Christ in this consecration that we're talking about in Hebrews 12:14, so that our sins are removed and we're purified and then we no longer have a consciousness of sin. Our conscience, if it tells us we're guilty, is lying. And we've been removed from the realm of dead works and of guilt and of death and brought into fellowship with the living God to serve him. And this term to serve the living God is a term used for priestly service. It's clear that he's talking about us serving, waiting on the Lord, serving him, giving him praise, giving him our lives, living before him in holiness. So as you've said, and you know, we should underline that, the author of the Hebrews and every biblical author is concerned about believers living holy lives. You shall be holy as I am holy. That's completely biblical. It's just not what Hebrews 12, 14 is saying. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.